You're listening to TIP. When I started tweeting in October of 2020, I've gotten a lot of this from a lot of people. I started breaking down these strategies. My first tweet was all cash, no tax, run bonus appreciation, run cost seg as a real estate pro. And people started out of the woodwork going, what is this? And, and had been operating in real estate for 15 years, having never run cost segs, never run bonus. It got really sweet in 2017. If you're not taking it, you said you feel like you're missing the boat. It's kind of true. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode of Millennial Investing, I got to sit down with Mitchell Baldridge to talk about his thesis of buying a business, buying real estate, employing tax strategies, enjoying the cash flow, and then paying little to nothing in taxes. You also learn in more detail about the tax benefits of owning a small business, why a cost segregation study makes sense to do, what it's been like launching several new companies, and how Twitter has accelerated his career by decades. Mitchell is a certified public accountant and certified financial planner with a huge amount of experience in corporate accounting, business advisory, and financial planning. He founded Baldridge Financial in 2014, and he's also involved in several other businesses, including Better Bookkeeping, RE Cost Seg, and Tax Credit Hunter. I really loved this episode with Mitchell, and I learned a ton from him on the different ways to take advantage of the tax code using some of the strategies that we discuss. I really liked hearing about the two questions that he asks himself before starting a new venture and how he would get started in a new business today if he only had $1,000. And so, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Mitchell Baldridge. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a really special guest I'm excited to have on. I've been following him on Twitter for quite some time. I want to welcome to the show, Mitchell Baldridge. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Patrick. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you too. I had uh, your partner, Nick, on earlier in the week. So it's kind of a treat to have both of you on like in the same week. So I wanted to just kind of just jump right in on Twitter, you're really known for like your main thesis is like start a business, buy real estate, employ tax strategies, enjoy the cash that the business throws off and pay little to no tax. So I wanted to just kind of hear a little bit about some concrete examples of maybe clients or just examples that you have seen in, in your own work life or even your own personal life of how you employ this strategy. Yeah, yeah. So what an awesome idea, right? You have this business or job that kicks out money and then you go buy real estate that helps you build wealth and then you use depreciation to compound quicker and hopefully defer taxes for a really long time. And so, yeah, there's three main examples I'd think of. There are just, you're kind of like core real estate syndicator. Like Nick Huber talks about this all the time that he has successful businesses on the side. And then he has this core business of real estate investment and it allows him to defer taxes like crazy. Kind of a more closer to home example would be I'm a dentist and I own a dental practice and we buy a building that we operate out of. We have this expense in our life. It comes every month. It's called rent. Well, we can pay rent to ourselves and get a chunk of land and grow our wealth. One more example I think of is a client I have where the 
husband works for one of the big fang companies out there and makes a million dollars a year. And the wife runs kind of small real estate syndications and runs their own real estate. And she's a real estate pro. So I kind of want to pause there. Can you explain a little bit like what a real estate professional is? There's a lot of, we've got kind of like beginning intermediate listeners. And so like, what's the definition of a real estate professional? So yeah, real estate's awesome because you create all this kind of phantom expense right up front called depreciation the year you buy this property. But the problem offhand is that real estate income is deemed passive in nature by the IRS and by the tax code. So there's different types of income. There's active income, which is, hey, I go to work and earn a paycheck or I own a business. There's passive income, which is I don't work in this business. And then there's portfolio income, interest you make off of stocks and stuff like that, capital gains. So passive losses cannot offset active income normally unless you are a real estate pro. So to be a real estate pro, you have to spend 750 hours and more than half your time each year working on or in real estate, in the business of real estate. So that's this bar to clear to be able to employ these strategies in your life. So you have to find ways to get there. So it's 750 hours, half your working time. It could be anything real estate related. It could be managing real estate, renovating real estate acquires, constructs, reconstructs, manages. Yeah. I mean, so for example, being a general contractor would be a great example of you wouldn't necessarily think you're in real estate, but you are a real estate pro. There's this IRS publication 925 that really kind of breaks this totally out about passive activity losses. I wanted to get into like your thoughts on just owning a small business and just like the tax deals that are available, the tax strategies that are available to preserve some of your income. Do you think owning a small business, whether it's a side hustle or even, you know, something larger is something that most people should do? If, are they missing out like by not taking advantage of the kind of the IRS tax codes that are, you know, the benefits that are in place there? Yeah. I mean, the retweet thesis of kind of start a business, buy real estate, all cash, no tax is definitely one of my core theses in life. But even probably ahead of that would be owning a business is the path to lower tax and wealth. And it's just true. It's not for everyone in the sense that like there are just people who can't do it for one reason or another because of some instance in their life. And I wrote a thread a while back about a client of mine who's a W-2 employee who makes $6 million a year working in high finance. And that guy's not a W-2 loser, right? So all these, Twitter is no place for nuance. All this stuff gets totally convoluted. But I think owning a business is this path to lower tax and a path to wealth. And there's a bunch of reasons why. Like the main reason, like I used to have a job. I was an accountant. I showed up at an office downtown, drove my car to work, sat in my cubicle and hammered away taxes. So I would go earn money, pay tax, and then go home and start paying my cell phone bill and paying for personal development expenses that my company wouldn't reimburse. And I would have these kind of like fringe expenses that were really for me and my business, the business of me that I couldn't deduct. Well, when you go into business for yourself, all those go above the line. 
you earn money, you pay for everything, and then you pay taxes. So that's the other things are benefits plans and the idea that you can go then run these asset strategies. If you just are a guy who makes $6 million at your job, that's awesome. But you can't go buy a building and work out of it and say that it's a business asset. It just doesn't work that way. And then the last one would be succession planning. Like you can't sell your job. I mean, you probably have some deferred comp or you have some kind of ways to get out of this partnership that you're in, or, you know, you have some kind of golden parachute at the end, but regular folks, you can't just say, Hey, I want to do something else here. Hand me $2 million and I'm going to take a little time off and go work on the next thing. You can't sell the job, right? So yeah, I've got a buddy that was a higher earner CFO at a large insurance company in Columbus. And it's like, once he stopped there, like it was over. <laughs> so there was no more income coming in. So what about like retirement plans, like for small business owners? What are some of those that you would recommend for a small business owner to explore and to utilize? Yeah. I mean, the big difference is if you have employees versus if you don't have employees. Because once you start bringing on other employees, you can't run these crazy retirement plans that really serve you as the owner and then have them. Employees don't value, in my experience, employees don't necessarily value like these huge matches and huge contributions the way owners do because employees are just like, give me my money, man. I, I showed up to work. I want you to pay me. Let's talk about, can I ask you about, like I was listening to the the Smart Friends episode and you were talking about a breakout with, I think, David Perel, the writing passages guy. And you're talking about the power of writing. And I think the thing that you were most interested in was like the creator economy. It seems like that's like an interest of yours, like the creator economy and solopreneurs. For a solopreneur, what are some things like, I think of a guy like Justin Welsh, right? He's kind of like the solopreneur kind of guy, right? Who's killing it. And what are some things that somebody that are cloning him or modeling him, what are some like retirement things that or tax strategies that solopreneurs should be looking at? Yeah, totally. I mean, those are folks who, yeah, do not have this principal agent issue of them. They're their own employee. They have no other kind of mouths to feed in that sense. So they can go set up this Cadillac retirement plan and Cadillac health benefits and Cadillac everything that completely serves them. So there's different models to do it. People do set plans, self-employed pensions. People do a solo 401ks. People do mega backdoor Roth 401ks. Like there's a lot of information on the internet and a lot of it. And obviously go do your own research and work with a planner. A lot of these plans will allow you to either get $65,000 of deferred money into a qualified plan, or you know, you can pay tax and get a big chunk of money into a Roth plan that can just go compound tax free forever, theoretically. And then, uh, I mean, you even get into like defined benefit pension plans that big companies would have that can allow certain people to get a couple of hundred, two, three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars deferred every year. And then you can go start investing out of that. Yeah, it's huge. I know that you did a, a small business tax workshop with Nick Huber, Sweaty Startup recently. But I wanted to hear for the like our listeners that didn't get a chance to listen to it, weren't maybe you know aware of it. What were some of like the top two or three takeaways from that event that stand out to you that 
somebody as a small business person or as a real estate investor should know or should you know like learn about? Yeah, no. A lot of the things we just discussed about taxes and benefits and assets and succession and and all that. One other thing, like we talked about salt cap workarounds, you know, that like in 2017, Tax Cuts Jobs Act hit. You used to be able to deduct all your state and local taxes. Now you can only deduct $10,000. Business owners now have this kind of little backdoor that a lot of states give you where you get to deduct your state income taxes. Like, the qualified business income deduction. I post about that. I have this kind of annual post. Explain that in more detail, if you would, the qualified business income. There's this same thing, 2017 Tax Cuts Jobs Act. They do this major tax reform like they hadn't done since the 1980s. And one thing they did was lower the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. And so they threw this bone to small business owners saying, hey, we're actually going to give you this 20% deduction out there on QBI, qualified business income, which if you own a partnership or an S-corp, a lot of the income that spits out of that would qualify. And so there's a couple of issues and there's a couple of qualifications and workarounds that I see people come in, prospect clients who are consistently under-optimized where I just say, hey, we could have gotten you a $400,000 deduction. We could have gotten you a 20% deduction on your $2 million of EBITDA, but for you didn't pay yourself a bonus or you didn't aggregate this stuff right. And so there's just little hidden landmines and little levers you can pull different places that you might not even know about, but structuring the right way or kind of moving things in the right order can make a meaningful impact. I mean, that's 8% of your effective tax rate out there that's just laying on the table. Well, I think it's really hard as an investor, real estate investor, or a small business owner to stay on top of what is available. And if your accountant isn't, and it's even hard for an accountant to stay on top of it, I think you would probably agree. Like, There's just so much out there. I think Chris Powers made the point that as an investor, he's focused on real estate, and you've really got to find somebody to that really knows the tax codes to take maximum advantage of what's out there. I wanted to hear a little bit about like just common, I guess the biggest mistakes that you see real estate investors make on just missing out when they're doing their taxes and potential savings that are out there that they just, I mean, you mentioned the one here, but like, are there others that like people aren't taking advantage of? I know in my own case, and we're going to get into this, cost segregation stuff is something I've never done. And it, I feel like I've been missing the boat a little bit, honestly. And I brought it up to my accountant and he kind of explained it, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't something he urged me to pursue. Yeah. And I think here's the setup, like accountants over the last three years have been, this thing happened in March of 2020, at least in America, Congress passed all of this kind of like emergency stimulus legislation and made accountants and the IRS the like vector for stimulation distribution to small business in America. And so it it screwed everybody up because everybody had to go learn a lot of new rules and figure out the best way to get these kind of benefits, whether it be PPP loans or ERC credits or all of that. They basically made the accountant the kind of chief officer of stimulus to small business in America. But I mean, this has happened. Accountants have always had the rap of 
hey, uh, they're not proactive and they're too conservative and they don't understand my business. And it's a hard job, man. So with that being the setup, business owners, yeah, I want to focus on my business. I want to focus on my investments. I don't want to focus on my tax strategy. You have to either find a partner in your business who can help you operate and optimize all of that, which is hopefully your accountant. And you also, frankly, just have to buck up and figure it out yourself because you raise the money. You either raise the money from yourself or other people and it's your duty to care. So yeah, like when I started tweeting in October of 2020, I've gotten a lot of this from a lot of people. I started breaking down these strategies. My first tweet was all cash, no tax, run bonus depreciation, run cost seg as a real estate pro. And people started out of the woodwork going, what is this? And, and had been operating in real estate for 15 years, having never run cost segs, never run bonus. It got really sweet in 2017. If you're not taking it, you said you feel like you're missing the boat. It's kind of true. So the biggest mistake people make is they don't have the right partner or they're not focusing enough on tax. Like in some ways you go, well, the tax is the tax and it is what it is and I'm just going to pay it. But you know, that joke, don't leave a tip. I mean, 40 to 50% of your bottom line business income is going to be paid to the government in the form of taxes. Like it's worth getting right. It's the biggest line item expense you'll have. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. One thing I appreciate about you just, and I think Chris made this point, is you've made tax and tax planning, financial planning, interesting. And, you know, it's been super useful to me. Like, I think probably I heard, I found out about cost segregation. I think I started learning about it maybe last summer, I want to say, you know, between you and Nick, like just hearing about it. And I kind of wanted to jump in a little bit more to cost segregation. So for our beginning listeners who don't know what that is, just at a high level, explain what a cost segregation study is and then the benefits of it, like why somebody should be doing it. Yeah. So a cost segregation study is an engineering study like you would get a survey or an appraisal or a building inspection. It's a report at the end that takes the building that you just purchased and blows it into its component pieces and tags a tax life onto every component of the building. So yeah, look, think about one of those blueprint diagrams with the entire thing exploded and in its kind of separate parts. And the reason we do that is because five-year, seven-year, and 15-year property, which for example, would be parking lots and refrigerators and certain accessory equipment and accessory plugs and outlets. And there's this whole litany of the type of qualifying property is not part of the building but it is a separate type of property called 1245 property. And so this 1245 property, remember 2017 Tax Cuts Jobs Act, they renewed 100% bonus depreciation for all 1245 property and looped in the idea that, yeah, there's one more point of clarification is they opened up bonus depreciation to used property. It used to only be that like you would build a new building and it would be qualified for bonus. Well, now you can go buy a 30-year-old storage facility in a cornfield and bonus depreciate 40% of it. So what that means is that as you isolate these components of your building that are five, seven, and 15-year property, you can add those up and bonus depreciate them year one. So you can get 100 or in 2023, 80% of that expense accelerated to year one and create like I mentioned earlier, this huge phantom expense. So if I were to just walk through a case study, let's say you bought a million dollar office building, some portion of that for easy math, let's just say 200,000 was land. So 200,000 is land and 800,000 is building improvement. Well, for an office building, it would normally be depreciated straight line over 39 years. So, you know, 2% a year, or two and a half percent a year, let's just say. And in that easy math, that's $20,000 a year on this $800,000 building. So, you know, you bought a million dollar building, you put $400,000 down and you took debt on of $600,000. So 400K went out of your pocket and you're going to get $20,000 a year of depreciation for the next 40 years. When you employ the strategy of cost segregation and bonus, We're going to take that $800,000 of building improvement and we're going to go find 30% of it. Yeah, easy math. 30% of it is five, seven, and 15-year property. So you're going to get a $240,000 deduction 
year one instead of a $20,000 deduction. So it just so happens that the year $400,000 leaves your bank account, you're greeted with a $240,000 deduction. And so the levers are how much land is in the property, how much of the building is deductible, is it 25% or 35%, and then how much debt did you use to buy the property? Because if you bought it with 90% debt, then you really just put 100 grand down and you're still getting 240 back as a deduction year one. You're bringing up a lot of questions here for me. One of them is, so I I had Yona Weiss on the show and he mentioned that when he brings up cost segregation to investors in real estate, investors, accountants, things like that, in general, people may have heard of it, but in general, they don't know that much about it and definitely don't utilize it. So, I mean, you you just ran the numbers here on this. It seems like a absolute no-brainer, easy sell. I don't understand why it's not more commonly done. I've got a father who's been in real estate his entire career. He's 80 years old. And I asked him about cost segregation. He he didn't know about it. And it seems like this is often the case. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, Why is this? Yeah. I read a trade piece that said 3 to 5% of people who could qualify and benefit from cost segregation use the strategy. So that seems to line up with what you're saying. And so, yeah, I mean, we've had the benefit of having a Twitter platform through Nick and through me and through the at RE Costseg account, which all we do is educate the public in this interesting way of when you tell a real estate investor, hey, you can pay less tax and defer tax and compound quicker, people are excited about that. And then people start to look into it and then people start to understand it. And I mean, it's not for everybody and there's downsides. The downsides are depreciation is real. So you're taking all this depreciation up front as a phantom expense. Meanwhile, over the next 40 years, your building's going to turn to rubble if you don't fix it. So you're going to need a new roof. You're going to need to repave the parking lot. Recapture is real. So if you go sell the thing in three or four years. So in that case, if you're going to sell it in three to four years, you would not recommend doing a, a study, correct? Yeah, you have outs, you have, well, you may want to do it just because, again, the year all the cash leaves your bank account, you get the deduction. Then the year the cash comes back, you pay the tax. So, like, I would rather pay tax. I'd rather get a deduction as cash leaves my account and then pay tax when cash comes back into my account. It becomes kind of like a retirement account, but it's just non qualified. You know, it's just your money. But it's that same idea of like, I put 20 grand into a 401k, it grows and grows and grows. And then the day I pull it out, I pay the tax on it. You're just deferring tax, but deferring tax is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So you and Nick have started this company, RE CostSeg. I wanted to hear a little bit about that, like how you guys ended up partnering. I wanted to get into, I heard Nick actually on our interview, he talked about the three different ways that companies can compete. One was on price, one on quality, and one on speed. And I wanted to hear how you guys think about that. Like, how are you competing in the space? What's your competitive advantage? Just kind of go into a little bit about how you guys teamed up in that partnership and then just your competitive advantage in doing the studies. Yeah. So I've known Nick for several years and Nick was the guy who dragged me on Twitter and has dragged me all the way along to having the following I have today and helped me out a lot. And Nick's a good friend and a client, Nick and Dan at Bolt Storage. And so, you know, we had talked about, I'd always liked this business of cost seg because it's 
when I take on an accounting client, I've taken on their business and their personal and their state and their grandma and their grandson and just their whole world. Whereas Coseg is just like, yeah, you have to be an expert. You have to know what you're doing, but it's one line item on one tax return. <laughs> you know, uh, you're ultimately boiling down this whole business to come in to uh, be a very close ended project for better or worse. So I've always liked the business and Nick has been a power user of the product. He He's liked the product and then he's seen me espouse the benefits he has as well. And then he's started referring a lot of people to a cost company. Well, one day we woke up and said, hey, let's start our own. And so we immediately started, we hired an engineer and a salesperson and we developed a process my wife, Melanie, is the CEO of the business and, and she runs the day-to-day and she takes care of all the big stuff. But I think that it's somewhat of a commoditized product, but our kind of key advantages are, one, we have a platform to educate the end user of which 95% are either uneducated or have become educated and decided not to do it. And then two, we have this access to kind of talent and labor and systems that build off of Nick's business and off of my business. And we've come together to really build this awesome flywheel of how to get these things done really, really well. And you guys have grown really quickly, right? You've got 26 employees, something like that, maybe more by now. And revenue's kind of gone off the chart. Yeah. I mean, we got yesterday the notification of like, hey, it's your one year Twitter anniversary. And I sent it to our group chat and was just like, holy smokes, we've done a lot in a year. And so, yeah, it's been a up and to the right curve and we've hired and hired. And yeah, we've built a whole team and we've built a whole system. We've iterated probably four times in the last year of just kind of V1, V2, V3, V4. So it's been wild. So I wanted to hear about that. Just some of the challenges of, because I heard Nick talk about like starting the company. And at one point, you know, it was like mostly virtual. I don't think, you know, he's met you, but I think in general, like you hadn't met a lot of the, the guys that are working, people that are working for you. Talk about some of the challenges of running a company like that, whether you want to call it virtually or from afar, like What's that been like? I'm curious to hear. Yeah. So it's been entirely kind of distributed. And man, the challenges are you have to have leaders in the right seats who have the genuine interest of the company. So we, we've been lucky to have kind of our lead engineer, who's just the first guy we hired. We got really lucky and he's stepped up and we had the lead sales guy and he's stepped up. The real challenge in building that quickly is like, I don't know if you've ever read that book, The Goal, that talks kind of about business. It's that. It's just like you're chasing bottlenecks everywhere. Like sales immediately started coming in. And then we had a production bottleneck. And then we've finally built production into this perpetual system where like I feel like we could scale up to anything at this point in that we have great people, we have great systems, we have great processes. And so then now sales becomes the bottleneck of like, oh, well, we now have this huge team. We now have this huge machine that just churns out work. We got to sell into it. So I feel like you're always chasing something of either more sales or more systems and labor to get the thing going. And it's just happened so quickly. It's this ping pong ball, you know? 
Yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought the sales would have been like you have more sales and you, you know clients that you know what to do with. And the hard part is like producing the actual study itself. That's initially how it was. It was until it wasn't until we were like, oh, now we have this method of how we do this and we have this system of how we get on the calls and the system of quality control. And now, yeah, I mean, we have the this kind of amazing COSEG vending machine where you input your information and you get on this virtual site visit or we fly out to your building and walk around and like we get it done and we get it done on time and we get it done really, really well, which is awesome. But yeah, so now our ambition just never seems to end. So, you know, now we go, well, we need to grow. We need to go more. I heard Nick's interview with Pomp, Anthony Pomp, whatever, I forget is how you pronounce his last name, but you know, he threw out some numbers that were like, wow, pretty sizable what the company, you know, his long range view, probably yours as well of what the company could do. So it's pretty cool, like pretty exciting. Uh, it's just been a blessing for, uh, I mean, it's just like, I've never started something that just worked immediately. Just like that. Yeah. I think my first business, like when I became an accountant, you know, I sent an email to 200 friends and family and I got to work and kind of never turned back. And this is the same way. It just was like, there was no fighting it. It just worked. Well, I mean, like I said, it seems to me like an easy sale once you explain it and you educate people and people realize the numbers, like what it doesn't seem like, seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah. The proposal is literally like, hey, pay us $5,000 and we're going to save you $500,000, a hundred to one. Do you want that or no? And it goes back to like what we started the episode off with starting a business, buy real estate, employ tax strategies, enjoy the cash flow, and then pay little to no tax. It seems like that's how you're doing it in your own life. You've got you know the cost seg company, you've got tax credit hunter, I believe it's called. And then you've also got better bookkeeping. So let's, I wanted to hear a little bit about those other businesses too. Maybe better bookkeeping, if you want to talk about that, or I'll leave it up to you. Yeah. So better bookkeeping is something that I've been working on for about two years, which is a, we rebuilt a tax software from nothing. So here's the principal story. A client came to me. He was a real estate private equity guy. He kept all of his books on a spreadsheet and it was really well done. It just was laborious. He, did, he didn't like to do it and it was a pain in the butt. He's typing in receipts every day. And I just say, okay, listen, we're going to take this off your hands. We're going to get you into the big Intuit QuickBooks product out there that everyone uses. And we got him all the way into the product and was trying to show him how to use it and all that. And it was like legitimately a worse product than the system he had already built. But because it, it just was oversized for his needs. And so I started to think, well, how do I get bank feed at the front end and effectively a spreadsheet at the back end? And how do I offer my own tax insights? Because I get everyone on this really, really uniform system. And so that's how Better Bookkeeping was born. And it's turned into this productized service. It's done for you bookkeeping, tax preparation, and tax kind of consulting for the Justin Welch solopreneur type people or the small business owner or venture backed kind of early stage founders. And we've scaled that kind of in a whole separate venue, but using a lot of the same tactics that we use to scale Ari Kaseg. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So you've got a ton going on. You've got, I mean, a ton. I, so I, I kind of wanted to just hear about like an average day, like how you're spending your time. Like, what are you focusing on? I also wanted to hear like what you're most excited about, like in terms of the different projects you've got going, which one do you feel like has the most potential? I think ultimately this distribution engine at the front is the biggest thing that I like the most valuable thing I can spend my time on is writing threads that clearly explain tax ideas to people or writing a newsletter that clearly explains tax ideas to people that that seems to be what people connect with or financial ideas as they were. So, I mean, I've seen people who I admire a lot ahead of me, like Peter Malouk in creative planning or Andrew Wilkinson with tiny and you ask what I'm most excited about, I'm going to just give you this cop-out answer of, I'm excited about everything because I believe all these are puzzle pieces that fit together with distribution at the front to, you know, when all of these pieces come together and they're all doing $75 million a year in revenue, they all become big enough, you know, together, they all become big enough to be merged into some huge vehicle to come together to, to be this awesome thing. So that's how I've looked at it. And 
people say focus on one thing and it seems like I'm focused on a lot of things, but actually I feel like I'm focused on one thing, if that makes sense, which is building the best kind of accounting firm that has ever existed for business owners and entrepreneurs. That makes sense. I forget how David Center phrased it, but like maniac on a mission. Maniac on a mission, which I really liked. But then I started thinking about, same with myself, I've got a lot of different things going on. And I thought like, well, maybe I should just be a maniac on a mission on just one thing. (laughs) So yeah, it it is hard to say like, what is focus? You know, you read a book like The Power Broker with Robert Moses. I talked about this in the last pod, maybe with David and Eric, but like that guy cornered New York. Like you don't do that by working on one thing. (laughs) You have to work on a lot of things all at once. So but yeah, you also have to be tremendously focused. So it's hard to say. I wanted to talk, you mentioned like the most important thing you can spend your time on is distribution and creating content. So I wanted to get into a little bit about Twitter. You did a great episode with Chris Powers, you and Nick did three or four months back, I would say, but you had said that Twitter has, has accelerated your careers like 20 or 30 years, something like that. And Nick, I heard him say like something about how without Twitter, he'd still own a moving company and a handful of, of self-storage facilities. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your experience with Twitter, just how it's benefited you, how you think about it, and then a little bit about how like other people like who, you know, who don't have 60,000 followers or whatever your number is at this point, how they can create content that's useful, but that you have done. Like that's, I mean, that's been the key, I would say to like you and Nick's success is you're putting out content that people want and are learning from. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was lucky to start in a time that I started this three years ago and the space might be more crowded today, but a lot of the reasons why you couldn't do this are just stories because we also just see really quickly, like there's a new guy or gal who just comes in and immediately starts hammering tons of value and then builds a following. And you don't have to have a 65,000 follower or a 300,000 follower or even 25,000 followers to gain tremendous value from Twitter. As soon as I started writing my ideas, just this inflow of people immediately started coming in. Kevin Kelly wrote about this a thousand years ago with a, a thousand true fans. It's like, yeah, you, you literally just need your people. You don't need all the people. And frankly, all the people, I think Nick Huber would tell you Twitter was more fun at 30,000 followers than it is at 300,000 followers, but 300,000 followers gets you something that 30 doesn't. So if you have no ideas, then it's a problem. And But I don't think, and maybe I think a little bit differently than other CPAs, but also I just came in with every idea I ever had and just gave it away for free. And we did that the same way with CostSeg. We go, here's exactly how CostSeg works. Take it and try to do it yourself. But we have 25 people working pretty hard at it. So you may want to use us. So I wanted to hear about your, like the creative process, writing in general. You, you went to this, went to Capital Camp recently. We're going to get into Capital Camp a bit, but talk about like, was writing something that came naturally to you? It seems like for Nick, it's really like a, a strength. I wanted to hear about like how it's been for you. Just like writing is like a real skill. It's a, it's almost like a superpower if you're great at it. I would definitely say it's a superpower if you're great at it. I wanted to hear how it's been for you. Like just crafting a thread is an art form, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a 10 out of 10 
thread writer or hook writer and I've gotten help. Sometimes if I'm about to write something that I really want to go bananas, I will send it to other people and say, hey, help me clarify this. So yeah, I mean, writing takes practice. I don't love writing. I wrote out a lot of my ideas and then canonized them in this big thread of threads and then just kind of left it there. And lately I've been working on rewriting a lot of my ideas and relaunching a newsletter, big sequence that's 40 week sequence of (laughs) kind of a lot of my threads and a lot of other ideas, because I think that's a powerful kind of new frontier. What's the name of the newsletter? I'll put a link in the show notes. What's the the newsletter? It's called The General Ledger. So, you know, and yeah, I think it just that idea of that evergreen drip, it's going to kind of replace a blog in some sense of just now I can send new people who enter my orbit all of my best ideas and I can front load my best ideas to these people. So, yeah, I think that's pretty powerful. But I've never just loved writing. Writing is kind of a means to an end to get my ideas out there. Nick becomes like possessed. He has this idea and he drops everything and just hammers out a a 300 thread uh, or 300 tweet thread. You know, I'm just curious because we've got a newsletter also called We Study Markets. You know, the Investors Podcast puts out and one of the things I've been in charge of is like doing the threads on Twitter to get subscribers and get people to sign up. So Nick talks about like the top of the funnel, like kind of casting a wide net and like it narrows down and narrows down and narrows down to the point where, you know, you've got your clients that like, that's really ultimately like, you know, where, where things are headed towards. I don't know. It's just interesting. Like the whole strategy is interesting for me to think about. Yeah. That's a big way I thought about it. Cause I got 65,000 people up here and I ultimately have 150 clients at the bottom. Like I, I, I run a small accounting firm with 15 people in it. So that's why I even started to build Coseg in the middle or a newsletter in the middle or this better bookkeeping product. I, I think I can have a lot more clients who fit a very narrow, specific subset of, of type of customer. I wanted to jump into a new topic here. We had mentioned the Smart Friends podcast, which I really, I just found out about it, really love it. It's David Senra, who's the founder's podcast guy, and Eric Jorgensen, who wrote The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which is a great book. The three of you kind of just rap and talk, and it's really great stuff. I think you've done three or four episodes, but one that you just recently did was Lessons from Sam Zell. And I wanted to hear you guys talk through that, some of the biggest lessons that you learned from the life of Sam Zell, who unfortunately just passed away a month or so ago. So yeah, Smart Friends is Eric's podcast and he does a ton of interviews with a, a bunch of great people. And yeah, we've created this recurring segment. He has another one with his, uh, like he has a rolling fund called Rolling Fun with Aldon and Bo Fishback. Like he, he has these kind of like groups of people who jam out and yeah, me, David and Eric have ran a few of them and it's a lot of fun. And so, yeah, David had gone to lunch with Sam Zell and was planning to go to dinner with Sam Zell in the weeks before he passed and Sam got sick. And so David, a lot of what I know has kind of come through David, but I think what struck me the most is like, guy was in his eighties. He was living, living life to the fullest. David said he had talked to Sam and Sam was most excited that he had just bought 70% of a family business, like a legacy business that I think was making, uh, I'll just make up a bunch of numbers, but it was making $30 million a year of EBITDA. And 
I mean, Sam was in his 80s and out there just like playing the game and he didn't have to. And he also, I'd never met the guy, but he seemed to be doing what he wanted to do. He seemed to be allocating. He had optimized for freedom. He was flying anywhere in the country he wanted to go. He was working on deals he wanted to work on. He was working with people he wanted to work on. So like his unfortunate passing, I think, just shows you that like life can go any minute and you better be doing what you want to do and not optimizing for some thing way down the road because we're all getting old. Yeah. I saw you tweet about that a day or two ago, something about like a question that you've been asking yourself lately is like, do I want to be doing this in 10 years? Yeah. I posted that. I sort of reposted that even like an hour ago before I walked up to interview with you. Like two questions I asked myself before pursuing a big opportunity. Could this have a meaningful, positive impact on my net worth or my happiness or my relationships? And yeah, in 10 years, will I be happy that I chose to do this? So going to Capital Camp, going to Berkshire Conference, talking with people, talking with maniacs on a mission like David Sinra or one person who we always talk about on that podcast is Sam Hinkie, who we all three know. And like talking with people who have really, really, really long-term thinking helps me because sometimes I can get a little impulsive. And it's just like, I've found that as I optimize for, as I kind of let go and understand that we have a long road ahead of us, hopefully, and the world's not going to end in two years. And like, I'm playing a long-term game with long-term people and I should be optimizing for long-term decisions. And the more I do that, just it's better. It's objectively better because all the compounding happens at the third sigma. So like I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about that. Like, why are we talking about arbitrage when we could just be talking about playing long-term games? So you mentioned going to Omaha for Berkshire Hathaway. Is that an event that you've gone to previously or was this a new experience for you? And just kind of wanted to hear your take on the whole event. I mean, it's like a, it's what they call it, the Woodstock for capitalists or something like that. Yeah. Have you ever been? Never been. No, I, I had the opportunity to go this year and I just had too much family stuff going on. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, Charlie's 99 and uh, Warren is in his 90s too. And it seemed like if I ever wanted to go, now's the time to go. I'm not the biggest like Munger or Buffett aficionado or nerd, but I got to go with a few major Munger nerds. And, uh, you know, I got to go with Eric and a couple of other friends and it was a good time and it was a good weekend and Omaha's a good place. And again, it just stretches out my timeline of thinking to fill my thoughts, to go enter a world that a couple of billionaires in their 90s are the center of, and to see all the people that surround that is really, really interesting. So I enjoyed it. I would go back for sure. I'll probably go next year. I think I read the first event that Buffett had. I think there were like 13 people there. Like the very first one was 13 people. And now it's like, I don't know how many, 50,000 or maybe more. It seems like a football field of, you know, football stadium of people. So pretty cool stuff. I wanted to see if you had a little time for a fire round. You get five or so minutes for a quick fire round? Yeah, yeah. I'm good. All right. You seem like a big reader. I wanted to hear about a book that you think I should be reading. This is a question that uh, actually Chris Powers' mentor, John Marsh, asks people. What's one book that you think I should be reading? Man, so hard to like put that into... I never directly answer questions. Sorry. Did you, I, I want to real quick, did you read um, Unreasonable Hospitality? I think it's called. 
I think I know what you're talking about, but no, I didn't read that. I, just going back to books. So like David Sinra runs this podcast called Founders, where he's read hundreds of biographies of founders. Like books are, are going to show you like mindset and strategy, or they're going to show you tactics, right? And like all of these biographies tend to show you both. They show you a little bit of this glimpse of the background and the rise and the tactic. Like lately I've been rereading Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. That's an amazing book. Did you see Air? Yeah. Yeah. That was good. Kind of good little deal. But yeah, I mean, so I read books all the time for all different reasons and I have a thousand books. Like one book I just was recommended to me is Scaling Up Compensation, which is just literally a manual for how to build incentives and and compensate people because this is the year of incentives for me. (laughs) The year of kind of trying to, I have these three companies and I have these people in my world and how do I build incentive structures to grow the whole thing forward, minimize conflict? Well, how do you? I'm, I was curious that I wanted to ask that, like the top couple people that you hired for like the companies, do you, how do you incentivize them? Is it, do you give them equity? Do you give them, what's the book recommend? It's kind of always different. Yeah. I mean, and the book recommends a thousand different ways depending on the structure. And so like we have kind of different incentive structures in all three businesses, but that's one big thing I'm working on is how do I build this in the long term for all these businesses to converge into one plan, into one massive idea. So I try to build the systems to to connect and the structures to connect and the people to hopefully connect one day. So that's a 10-year idea, but and it's something I don't have figured out at all, but something that I was working on. Well, I would think also like part of it would have to do with like you figuring out the motivation of the individual too, like to figure out what incentive is going to motivate them. You got to figure out like, what is it that drives them? And because it's not the same for everyone. Entrepreneurs are, I'm coin operated. You give me money and I'm happy. Uh, but Yeah. Some people you give them money and they're offended or they're like, I, I didn't want money. Or they're looking for a recognition or appreciation or something more intangible. Yeah. Where I would just go, here's money. And they go, thank you for the money. But yeah, I want you to just not be a jerk. Yeah. I wanted to hear about who's the smartest guy that's made the biggest impact on your life, your career. I'm sure there's a lot. Oh, man. Going back to books, two books that I've read probably three times is Who is Michael Ovitz and Powerhouse, the book about CAA, Creative Artists Agency, and how they built that and how it worked and how it ultimately didn't work. Uh, although, you know, the principles of that turned out to be fine. But, you know, Michael Ovitz became this self anointed kind of center of the world and used relationships and used big ideas to ultimately like tip an industry from. Hollywood, which favored the production studios to taking the talent and packaging the talent and auctioning the talent and making the production studios, which used to run the world, now have to bid on these talent packages and drove up prices and just changed the market. So or David Ogilvy would be another example of just the best writer. I mean, you want to talk about writing and you can read the confessions of a ad man and and Ogilvy on advertising. And just like I own an accounting firm, which is ultimately a service firm, an agency, CAA is a service firm. Ogilvy's firm is a service firm. I just get to learn so much from these like masters of their craft who are fantastic writers and geniuses who teach me something. And then they teach you also what not to do. 
Last one real quick here. You've got a thousand, couple thousand bucks to your name. You're just getting started. You're listening to this episode. You want to start a business. What business do you start? Man, I did this. I mean, I created an agency. I created a CPA firm. For Kaseg, We, I think we put $40,000 in to start it and it just grew and grew and we'd return the money back within five or six months. But like the best thing you can do is take something that's valuable and go trade on that. And if you don't know anything that's valuable, you can spend time trying to learn something that's valuable or you can trade organized labor. I mean, you can go start knocking on people's doors and power washing their driveways. But yeah, I would start an agency and really the whole thousand dollars would be spent on learning something and packaging something together and trying to acquire my first few customers and easier said than done, but I've just seen thousands of people do it right in front of my eyes. You know, Nick Huber has that hundred businesses he loves, the sweaty startups, and he's moved a lot more into agencies. So I, I'd go look at something like that. Yeah. I've got a nephew who's like 17 right now and he just, he's got a power washing. That's all what he's doing this summer and killing it. He's got a trucking and power wash and hired a couple of his buddies to help him out. And like, he's doing great. So there's just so many opportunities. And, that, and Nick's, to your point, Nick's PDF that you can get of like his top hundred business ideas. None of them are sexy, but like all of them, you know, are going to cash flow or is a great resource. Again, I'll put links in the show notes for that. So this has been a lot of fun, Mitchell. I really appreciate it. Love talking with you here today. For our listeners that want to learn more about you, cost segregation, the different businesses, you know, better bookkeeping, what's the best way for them to find out about you and learn more? Yeah. To find more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Baldridge CPA. You can check out betterbookkeeping.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter. You can check out the Twitter account at Ari Koseg. There's a lot of ways to find me. Thanks so much, Patrick, for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.